As I mentioned, our friend, Pastor Curry Pickard, is here to give us our message this morning. Curry, it's so great having you back. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Kevin. I always appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. And even though it's a little different, um, I've said it before, and I'll probably say it every time I'm here, that this church has a very special place in my heart. And so while it's always a joy and a privilege to share the word, it is doubly so as we get to do that together with all of you. I want to think today on the thought of why Christmas never lasts. And to do that, there are two passages of Scripture, one from the Gospel of Matthew, and then one from, of all places, the book of Revelation. So I invite you to turn, first of all, to the Gospel of Matthew, the second chapter. We'll read verses 13 through 23, and then we'll turn to Revelation, the 12th chapter. But to begin with, we turn to the Gospels, Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Let us hear this word of the Lord. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And then turning to the 12th chapter of Revelation. Revelation 12, we'll read the first 17 verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. 
he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord God, We claim the promise that your word never goes forth empty, but always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it out. We claim it today, that you will take these words written centuries ago and apply them to our hearts and stir us to deeper faith and action for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. But I think that most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. Oh, the good old Grinch. But unfortunately, the Grinch wasn't the only one with a bad heart. Centuries ago, King Herod also hated Christmas. He too had a poor heart. Chapter 2 of Matthew begins this way, after announcing the birth of Jesus and what would take place. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod. Now, the mention of Herod is never good or healthy. It always introduces us to the presence of evil. The truth is, Herod was mean. He was a vicious ruler. In fact, Caesar Augustus was quoted as saying that it would be better to be King Herod's pig than it would be to be his son, because the pigs were protected by law, but his son and family were not. In fact, history says that probably by this point, King Herod had already killed two of his own sons, one of his ten wives, his 18-year-old brother-in-law, his own uncle, and his mother-in-law. 
maybe we can understand the mother-in-law, but the rest of that. So what's a few babies to mean to Herod? Matthew sets the glorious birth of Jesus in what I think is a proper tension by vividly reminding us that Christmas, the birth of Jesus, does not end evil. In fact, it accentuates and activates it. Now, we're always aghast and stunned when innocent children are kidnapped or taken hostage or, or killed or become innocent victims. But it's never the first time it happened. It happened centuries ago when Herod slaughtered infants for his own sake. But Simeon had actually prophesied such a thing. Luke 2, verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I imagine at this point in time, Mary realized the prophecy was coming true. A sword was beginning to pierce her own soul. Imagine how she must have felt to see it coming true. And yet this is the reality of our world, is it not? What God intends for good, a sin-infested world uses for evil. There's a great story about Gutenberg. He was in his monastery building and inventing the printing press. And as he was doing so, he heard a voice that told him to stop what he was doing and to destroy the printing press because it would enable men to, to propagate their wickedness, prophesying that, that men would in fact profane the art of printing and posterity would curse the inventor. And so he took out his hammer and he began to smash the work that he had done. But then there was another voice which came to him and said, keep working on perfecting your invention. And he declared that though there would be evil, God would make it the fountain of infinite good and give righteousness and ultimate triumph. And isn't it amazing that still today, the printing press, the media that can be used for good, is used also for evil? You see, that's really the biblical view of history. There are always opposing forces. There was a Garden of Eden and there was sin. There was an Israel, and there was an Egypt. There was Jesus, and there was crucifixion. Wherever there is evidence of the kingdom, there is evidence of evil. Somebody put it this way. Whenever Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Herod wakes up in Jerusalem. That's why I selected Revelation 12 to be part of this morning. It paints a portrait for us. It says when Jesus ascended into heaven, Satan knew that he could no longer get at Jesus, that he had been defeated. And so what did he do? He said, I'll go after the followers of Jesus, which is the church. And so even as we bask in the afterglow of Christmas, we are aware that around the world, Christians are aggressively and violently persecuted for their faith. I checked the latest statistics through Voice of the Martyrs the other day, and it says that around the world, more than 260 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution just for following Jesus. Now, to put that in perspective, that's one out of every eight believers worldwide. 
One of every eight believers worldwide suffers severe persecution. One illustration, one country. Christianity is legal in Vietnam. But many in the country, including members of its communist government, see Christians as a threat and make it their business to persecute. Minority tribal groups that are Christian, like the Hmong, often face the most violent and harshest forms of persecution. It is also a known fact that the ruling forces in India and China have set goals of eliminating Christianity from their nation within the next two years. Milder, but certainly just as critical as what is happening in America. For many years now already, we are aware that anything sacred in the public square is discouraged and faces severe opposition. Schools and many office places refuse to allow the mention of Christmas. Pastors are told and demanded to walk a fine line and not to mix faith with political views. Presidents and government leaders are scorned any time they bring up the idea of faith. I found it interesting several years ago when the actor Christopher Reeve died. He had been involved in promoting stem cell research and a bill that he was supporting did not receive the approval of President Bush. And Christopher Reed went on to say that it would have passed had Bush not been trapped by people of faith. And then he said, religion and faith have no place at the table for that kind of discussion. And while time doesn't permit me to go into a lot of detail, let me give you one illustration of the kinds of things that are on the horizon for us. There's a document that has been put out by a group that calls themselves Secular Democrats of America that they have given to the Biden transition team. Now, before I go any further, this is not political. I'm not saying who I'm for or who I'm against. I'm just saying that here's a group that prides itself on who they are and are aggressive in what they're promoting, and they have taken the step of getting it already into the hands of the incoming president. Why is that a bad thing? This document calls for an all-out assault on the values of Americans and especially Christians. It accuses conservative Christians of, quote, providing constant cover for white supremacy. It demands the repeal of the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which, by the way, passed the Senate 97 to 3. It calls on Biden to dismantle the Religious Liberty Task Force at the Justice Department and the Religious Freedom Division at the Department of Health and Human Services. It demands that religious schools be required to teach curricula in accordance with national secular standards. It demands that faith-based organizations lose federal tax dollars if they adhere to their religious principles. And it demands that the IRS resume enforcement of the Johnson Amendment and that Congress, quote, pass legislation that would strengthen enforcement of the Johnson Amendment. That's an amendment that says churches are subject to taxation if they don't go along with the government. And it demands the, cap, the repeal of our national motto in God we trust and urges Biden to avoid the phrase Judeo-Christian values. Now, it's easy to say that'll never happen. But such political action groups are politically savvy and wise and powerful and perseverant. The cancel Christmas forces are hard at work 
and we cannot afford to forget that God sent his son to go to war. And that's why whenever there is evidence of our commitment, there is also evidence of evil. The last thing Satan wants to see is a deeply committed Christian. And that's why we see so much publicity about Christians who have a difficult time. He makes sure to publicize, for example, when a renowned Christian leader yields to temptation or does something wrong and makes the headlines. He's sure to point out some Christian man or woman who love each other and pledge themselves together for life and then get divorced or death separates them or tragedy hits their life. Or they highlight and point to, to someone who was baptized in the church and raised in the church and then chooses a rebellious road. Those are the headlines we see. Christmas reminds us that there is one who is against us. And that although God has become flesh in Jesus, evil is not powerless. Innocents are still slaughtered. War still rages. Injustice still exists. Paul wrote about the presence of evil in Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is the reality in which we live every day. It's why the Christmas spirit never lasts. It's because of the presence of evil. But there's a second reason the Christmas spirit never lasts. It's the personalization of evil. Christmas forces a personal decision for each of us. Because God became human, because God took upon himself flesh, because Christ was born, every person needs to make a decision. The fact is, Jesus poses a threat. Jesus was a threat to Herod. Herod had no way of thoroughly understanding who Jesus was, but it was said he was a king. And if that was at all true, then it was a threat to Herod. It was a threat to his power, to his control, to his authority, to loyalty to him, to his whole purpose for life. All Herod wanted was power, authority, and control, and loyalty. And a new king would threaten all of that. Jesus was a threat. Now, to get a clear picture of that concept, let, let's think for the moment about the birth of children. With all the joy and celebration that such a great event brings, it's also a catastrophic threat. Because is it not true that a new baby puts a couple's organized life into disarray? How so? Well, freedom to be spontaneous is lost. All decisions now involve a third party or a third and fourth party. There are new incessant unending demands on time and energy. Others in the parent's circle of relationships take a back seat. In short, the new baby provides a new point of orientation for life and everything revolves around it. Well, in the very same way, Jesus is a threat to us. All our decisions now involve him. He is a new point of orientation. He has moved in. He's taken over. He challenges our desire to be in control. He, in fact, insists on being in control. He says something about being Lord of our lives. 
Jesus affects our family, our business, our relationships. Seems like a long time ago now, there was something called a rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. There's a scene there where Herod begins mocking Jesus. Jesus remains totally silent, and finally Herod gets frustrated, and he loses control, and he shouts, Get out of my life! And I suspect that if we're honest with ourselves, there have probably been moments in our lives when we have wanted to shout or perhaps have shouted the very same thing. It is really difficult to let Jesus have control over our lives. We would much rather be in control. Isn't the ultimate threat really that if we get too close to Jesus, we might come to truly love him? And if we truly love him, that love will control us? Again, think relationally. When we love another person, that love dominates everything we do and everything we say. We want always to find ways and new ways to express our love. And the more we do so, the more we love. There's a writing called The True Christmas Gift that I think poignantly describes this all-controlling love. The only true Christmas gift is love, and all other gifts are only outward signs that we love. Anyone can give it, but you can't wrap it in expensive paper and pretty bows. You can't buy it, yet it is so rare and unique that only you can give it. It is very precious, yet it is accessible to the poorest, to the rich. A poor baby in a crude manger came to teach us about it, and we came together today to celebrate his birth and the love that he gave. There ought to be a warning label attached to love because you cannot give it away and keep it from coming back to you. Real love can't be taken back in exchange for something else. You can't give it only to those you really want to give it to because once love has touched you, it will become who you are. You'll find yourself trying to find ways to love even your enemies. You'll spend your whole life trying to give it away, and the more you give it, the more of it you will have to give. So let me ask you a question. What would your life look like if you truly loved Jesus? What input impact would it have on your life? How would it affect your mind, your attitudes, your passions? How would your daily life change? How would it impact your relationships? If loving Jesus was the all-encompassing passion of your life, what would your life look like? What's stopping you? You see, Christmas brings just such a personal decision. Now, I admit that in some ways, so far, it's been a downer of a sermon coming off of Christmas. But being a good Reformed sermon, there's a third point, so bear with me. There is hope. The presence and personalization of evil is always overcome by the power over evil. One of the great Christmas hymns captures it well. 
I heard the bells on Christmas Day. It puts it this way. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Here's the point of all of this. We must utilize what we have. Utilize what we have. Years ago, I read a story about a man in Chicago who was found dead in a small, shabby room that he rented for about $3 a week. He was a familiar sight on the streets of Chicago, selling newspapers and digging through garbage cans for his food, dressed in rags. One day, neighbors became concerned because they hadn't seen him for several days, and finally, he was found dead in his bed. The autopsy revealed that he had died from malnutrition, but they found something else. They found that wrapped around his waist, there was a money bag. And inside the money bag was $23,000. The man lived in poverty when he had plenty of riches to survive, peddled newspapers for a living when he had money by which to live. He could have lived at the finest hotel in town, but he lived instead in poverty. He could have eaten good food, but he ate instead from the garbage. He did not use what belonged to him. We need to use what belongs to us. And what belongs to us? We have a delegated authority. We have a delegated authority, and we need to start exercising it. I can perform weddings and sign a marriage license, not because I'm a pastor, but because the state has delegated authority to me as a pastor. They could take it away any day, and I would no longer have the power or authority to do it. It's a delegated authority that I need to use. With that backdrop, listen to the prophet Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Paul, 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We have all we need to fight, to resist, to conquer Satan whenever he comes after us. As John put it, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Speak and act with the authority that is delegated to you by Jesus Christ. You have all you need. And when you do so, you will discover that wherever Jesus Christ is preached, Satan is defeated. We cherish those great hymn words of Martin Luther, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word, Jesus. In Luke 10, 
Jesus sent out his disciples to spread his message, to do miracles of healing. And they returned all excited because so much had happened and they were so successful and they, they shared their stories with Jesus. And Jesus responded, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. Wherever and whenever Jesus Christ is preached and mentioned, Satan is defeated and the power of evil is lessened. That's why Jesus drove out demons. Even evil itself is subject to him. The baby born in the manger was not just the son of Mary. He was the son of God. So anytime you speak of an act on behalf of the Lord Jesus, Satan falls from heaven. Whenever you serve a meal in a community kitchen, Satan falls from heaven. Whenever you build a ramp or repair a house or build a house for someone in need, Satan falls from heaven. Whenever you give to an offering to support a ministry, Satan falls from heaven. Whenever you visit someone in the hospital or the funeral home, whenever you bring comfort to someone who's bereaved, whenever you bring a presence to someone who's lonely, Satan falls from heaven. Whenever you offer love to a broken person, Satan falls from heaven. Whenever you offer a prayer in the name of Jesus, Satan falls from heaven. Whenever you mention the name Jesus, Satan falls from heaven. Whenever you speak up when others are trying to tell you to be quiet, Satan falls from heaven. Whenever you witness about Jesus, Satan falls from heaven. Remember what Revelation 12 said? Satan was cast out because of the blood of the Lamb and the witness of their testimony. Every time a life is changed by Jesus, every time someone is baptized, everyone, every time someone makes profession of faith, Satan falls from heaven. So know this. A day is coming when the Christmas spirit will last forever. For we're told that on that day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Satan will fall one last time. I think it's captured well in the hymn, I Cannot Tell. I cannot tell how he will win the nations, how he will claim his earthly heritage, or satisfy the needs and aspirations of East and West, of sinner and of sage. But this I know, all flesh shall see his glory, and he shall reap the harvest he has sown. And some glad day his sun will shine in splendor when he, the Savior, Savior of the world, is known. I cannot tell how all the land shall worship when at his bidding every storm is stilled. Or who can say how great the jubilation when all the hearts of men with love are filled. But this I know, the skies will thrill with rapture and countless voices then will join to sing. And earth to heaven and heaven to earth will answer, at last the Savior, Savior for the world, is King. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, it is so wonderful to celebrate the birth of your son, to get caught up in the joy and the, just the special sense and feel of this time of year. 
that it doesn't take long for us to get back into the battle. Lord, encourage us. Remind us that Jesus is here to stay. The victory is his. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The Savior of the world is king. So help us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit to implant Jesus within us and upon our lips that everywhere we go, one little word shall fell him. Jesus. 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 In whose name we pray. Amen.